What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and I have the one and only Amber O'Hearn on the line today, and I'm super excited about this podcast because Amber is significantly smarter than me, so I'm going to learn something. Without further ado, how are you, Amber? Hi, I'm doing great. Good, good. Um, a lot of people that are in the keto space have heard of you with regard to, to carnivore. I think you're probably one of the, the OG carnivores, I would say. Yeah, I've been eating a carnivorous diet for, gosh, about nine years now. Nine years of just strict carnivore that entire time? Yes, well, I I would certainly have to say that I have had a couple of bites of things here and there, a dill pickle maybe, or a piece of 100% chocolate, but... That's a pretty rare occasion on a day-to-day basis. I pretty much just eat meat, and I do drink coffee, so that's my regular plant vice. Yeah, I drink I drink my weight in coffee too, so we're both guilty <laughs> as charged on that one. Um, yeah, I think th- this is actually really really cool because when I went to KetoCon last year and heard you speak, um, you had a really interesting take on kind of like just the evolution and just the history of carnivore and why it makes sense for humans to be carnivore. Um, so if you want to dive into that, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear your take on that. Sure. Well, our, our closest living relatives are the great apes, so like chimps and baboons and gorillas, and those animals are definitely herbivores. They eat mostly fibrous fruits, and so people tend to think about them as since they're so closely related to us, that that's what we should be eating too. But we're actually very different from them physiologically. When we parted ways in the past, um, our digestive system changed tremendously so that we just, we don't have the physiology to eat the kind of diet that they did mm-hmm. or that they still, that, that they do or and that we did back then. Um, so I think that the, most people think that the reason that our digestive system changed it was to support the development of our brains, which needed a lot of energy. And the digestive system of an herbivore has a huge amount of tissue that's devoted to holding microbes that will digest fiber. Because mammals can't digest fiber on their own. Any, any animal that you see out there, like a cow that's eating grass... It gets all its nutrients from the plants that it's eating, but it doesn't get it directly by breaking it down. It gets it by passing it on to this sort of um, outsourced thing within the body that holds microbes that change all that fiber into fat. So they're actually on a high-fat diet, too. They just get it sort of indirectly from the microbes. Mm -hmm. But when we needed to grow a brain... We had to give up that intestinal tissue because it's really expensive to maintain in order to have the energy released to grow the brain. And so our colons decreased tremendously so that we have very little capacity to turn fiber into fat now. And that meant that we had to get fat directly. And that fat that we were getting directly was coming from meat because we didn't have these big industrial complexes churning it out of plant oils, which is actually... It's kind of hard to get oil directly from a plant without a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm going to have to post a picture in the show notes of this that illustrates the difference, 
the differences in like the, the digestive tract between the apes and the humans and like a like a predatory cat for instance because we're much more in line with like a predatory cat now than the apes it seems yeah or even a dog i think would probably be the closest animal in terms of digestive physiology to us and i could send you a slide from that ketocon um, presentation that you mentioned that has some comparative pictures if you like yeah yeah absolutely i, lo I love that but it's it's crazy to think about um I don't know, a lot of people wrap their head around, you know, what to eat with regards to, you know, their beliefs system, which which is fine. I'm not, I'm not here to say that one's right or, the, or wrong. But when you break it down and look at our actual digestive system and compare it to with other animals and what their diets look like, I mean, that animals aren't really clouded by, you know, their belief system. They eat to survive and they eat what they can because of how they're made. Um, whereas, you know, we humans, if you were to, you know, take away the veil of, you know, beliefs and conscious and um, some of those less material um, or more abstract things. And you just look simply at how we're, how we're built to perform and digest foods. You would, you would think carnivore, carnivore makes a lot of sense. Yes, there are a lot of reasons that we eat things, a lot of social reasons, a lot of philosophical reasons. And, and like you said, a person's choice is a person's choice, but you, what you eat has consequences on your body because your body was your your body took a long time to be honed to expect a certain kind of food and if you give it something that's drastically different from that it can it only has so much capacity to cope mm -hmm. so what can you i mean just like dive into um you know the science of like how certain foods impact us on a physiological level and kind of why we may be uh you know, more optimized with less vegetation in our, in our nutrition? Well, one of the things that is important to understand is that we, not only did we have this need for fat, for energy, but there are certain nutrients in meat that are really very difficult to get in plants. Now, if you're a, if you're a vegan in the modern world and you have access to you know, certain supplements that can be brought in from different places and you don't have the constraints of just living off the environment that's directly there. You might be able to make up for a lot of these micronutrient deficiencies. But most of the um, nutrients that our, our brains really need to in order to function properly come from meat. And so it's really not feasible for someone to have a diet that doesn't contain meat without going really out of your way to be careful and get everything that you need. But the same is not true if you look at uh, plants. There's nothing that's in a plant, any kind of plant that we would regularly eat that, that we need that we can't get from animal-sourced food. So there's a great asymmetry there that has to be taken into account. One of the, the main arguments um, is that people that eat are, are deficient in eating, you know, vegetables that don't eat very many vegetables are going to be deficient in vitamin C. And what, what's the carnivorous take on that? Well, there are two reasons to think that's not actually a problem. One is just simply historically we know from Arctic explorers that people who were suffering from scurvy who got access to fresh meat, uh, the scurvy was cured. So 
the the argument for vitamin C, the discovery of vitamin C, was directly related to this deficiency disease that developed. And if you can address that need by meat, then obviously there's enough in it. There's some added confusion because the USDA database that if you go like onto nutritiondata.com and look up what beef contains, for example, it's going to say that there's no vitamin C in meat. And that's just actually not true. It's perplexing to me. I went back to the original documents where they said how they took these measurements. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they have this line that says, oh, we didn't measure that. We just assumed it was zero. All the other things, they took some kind of measurement. I have no idea why they would do that. They didn't do it for fish. If you look up salmon, you'll see that it has some. And then the other consideration is that when you're eating a low-carb diet, which a diet that's only meat is naturally going to be, mm-hmm. your, your need for vitamin C goes way down. And that has to do greatly with the fact that glucose and vitamin C compete for uptake in the cells. They use the same receptors. And so if you have a lot of glucose in your system, you need a lot more vitamin C to get that proportionally up so that in the bloodstream you'll you'll be able to take up some vitamin C. The glucose is, is kind of flooding the system. And once you take that away, all of a sudden your need goes way down. And this is really thematic, I think, for um, when you change to a low-carb diet. So many things change at the metabolic level. Vitamins, all, all vitamins really are, are co- coenzymes in metabolic processes that you need to to catalyze re- reactions. And so if you change the basic metabolic underlying process that you're using predominantly to get energy, then the proportion of different enzymes and coenzymes that you need are going to change. And so all these RDAs that we have established suddenly aren't necessarily applicable and we're left uh, kind of starting over. Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect example of why most of the daily vitamins that people get, like the one-a-day vitamins, are just, they're filled with all kinds of things you don't need and very few things that you actually need. Yeah. What about, so let's let's really dive into like the vitamins and the micronutrients. So with regard to, um, you know, somebody that's on a, a vegan or vegetable-based diet, what are some of the main deficiencies they're going to have that, that meat would just really, really uh, answer to? Well, the obvious one is B12. That one is extraordinarily difficult to get without using an animal source. I think that the vegan supplements that you can get for B12 uh, come from bacteria, maybe yeast. Um, so that's how they solve that. But all of the problem nutrients that vegans have typically have their biggest effect in the brain. So there's B12 which is really strictly difficult to get. But there are other ones that are, you can get them in plants, but there are problems with getting them, which I'll describe in a second. So for example, you have iron um, and iodine and zinc and selenium. You have vitamin A, you have vitamin D. I'm sure I've left some out. One of the problems with getting those vitamins from a plant source is the form could be different. So the form of iron in animal food is heme iron and the form in plant food is non-heme iron. And the heme iron is just a lot more bioavailable. 
A second problem with non-heme iron is that it typically comes in a plant like a green leafy vegetable where it's bound to um, anti-nutrients that prevent its absorption. So you could look at a database that says it has this much iron, but it doesn't take into account that a lot of that just isn't going to make it through your system. You look at plants, I mean, plants have evolved to, you know, protect themselves as well. Like, they don't want to be eaten by animals, so they've got, you know, several different protective mechanisms. Um, can you kind of talk about what some of those are and, and why, you know, you might just kind of flesh out what you just said, basically, that you might not be able to absorb a lot of what is advertised on the plant nutrition? Yes, so if you think about plants, they, they didn't, they aren't just here in order to serve us. They, they have their own <laughs> kind of agenda, and that is to survive. And over the eons, plants that didn't have some kind of defense against being eaten long before we were on Earth, even just by insects or, or small herbivores, if they didn't prevent that, and especially for their reproductive parts like seeds, then they, they're simply, you know, they're not going to make it to the next generation. Mm. And so... Over time, and, and plants, with some very small exceptions, do not move <laughs> in any significant way. So they can't use that strategy that uh, a buffalo would use to run away. Yeah. So, so all of their defenses, well, most of their defenses are chemical. It's true that there are things like thorns and bark that are protective. But most of their strategy is biochemical. And they have many different biochemicals that have been developed to prevent attacks. Either something that you eat that basically like, would kill the insect or prevent it from reproducing, things that interfere with digestion, um, anything that will prevent the animal from continuing to attack either immediately or just as a strategy to, to make them ill and make them not come back would be a, a, a strategy that would be reinforced through natural selection. Gotcha, gotcha. What about like the, the cell wall in the plant, uh, you know, food? Like that's going to kind of prohibit a lot of the, the nutrients from being broken out and actually used by our bodies as well, right? Yes, that's true. And that goes back to what I said about um, not being able to digest fiber. We, we simply don't have the correct physiology for breaking down fiber and it it just passes through us except for a small amount that what's the microbes that are remaining in our colon can can get some fat out of but yeah that's why you see if you see cattle they're always eating because they they just have to process so much in order to get the nutrients out that it it's it's an all-day process what about, um, this probably wouldn't really apply to you since you're not really eating vegetables anyways, but a lot of people, you know, they, they look at the carbs they're eating and they break it down into, you know, uh, fibrous carbs versus net carbs. Um, you know, from a digestive standpoint, like is, is your body using those fibrous carbs? Like why do people argue to count, to count total carbs on the ketogenic diet? Well, so the idea of net carbs makes a lot of sense from some point of view where you think the the carbohydrates are anything that's going to break down into sugar and that's obviously going to impact 
your blood sugar levels and your insulin levels and then how whether or not you're going to be an efficient fat burner or be in ketosis. So any kind of fiber, you're not going to be able to get sugar out of directly. And so it makes sense at a certain level to think, well, if, if it's just fiber, we don't need to count it. But there are well, for one thing, there, there are different fibers and a lot of products that are targeting the ketogenic market have put in things that are technically not direct carbohydrates and we don't really know what the effects of those are. And I've heard reports that people who eat those um, simply don't lose weight as effectively if that's what they're doing it for or that they very often they'll have terrible digestive issues that often has to do with sugar alcohols that are mm -hmm. also not counted in the carb count. But I think the, the bottom line reason why some people say you have to count total carbs is just that experience finds for whatever reason. And we might not know exactly the full physiological digestive fate of those fibers, but people just don't seem to do as, as well in terms of, weight loss, for one thing, if they don't count all the carbs. And I don't really know 100% why that is. I'm in that camp, by the way. Like, I advocate counting total carbs. Some people just, they want a free lunch, and I don't think there's any such thing as a free lunch with nutrition as a whole. Yes, I agree. I think that people, people think of fiber as a way to kind of trick your body, which is always a bad idea. <laughs> your body can't be tricked in the end. But they think, oh, well, I want to eat. It comes back to thinking of um, weight as a calories in, calories out phenomenon. And they think, if I eat more fiber, it's going to fill up my stomach. And then I'm going to think that I'm full, and I won't want any more. And then I'll eat fewer calories. But there are a few flaws in that thinking. One is that you're, I mean, the main one is that your hunger really isn't dictated by the volume of food in your stomach. The hunger comes from your body's demand for energy and nutrients. And if you don't fulfill that, it doesn't matter how, how bloated your stomach has gotten, you're still going to feel hungry, even if, even if temporarily your, your stomach sends you a signal to say, okay, that's enough for now. Mm-hmm. I agree. What, um, again, you, you being carnivore, this probably wouldn't apply to you, but what is the best way for people that do eat vegetables to eat them? Like, should they, you know, eat them raw or should they eat them kind of like cooked, steamed, sauteed, like something to help kind of break those down a little bit more before ingesting them? I think it varies per vegetable. So like we talked about earlier, different different plants have different kinds of toxins or phytochemicals in them. And if you want to minimize the effect of those, some of them can be minimized by cooking or at least reduced by cooking. Some of them, sometimes it helps to ferment it. I think of fermentation of food as a little bit like taking the gut that we no longer have and outsourcing it. <laughs> so you put some bacteria in there, let it break it down the way it would have if it if we had an herbivore stomach. And that can sometimes reduce some of the toxins. Um, so those processes can be good. There are probably some plants that are going to be not materially affected by cooking, and so there's no point in it. But I, 
I'm not really sure which ones those are. I've been, well, certainly um, starches, yeah. <laughs> but I suppose that doesn't apply to us. But if you want to get the starches out um, from a potato, you're going to have to cook it, right? Right, absolutely. I've been kind of playing around with introducing some kimchi because, like you said, it's already kind of pre-broken down. Um, and that seems to give me much much less stomach digestive upset than raw, you know, vegetables. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that process going on in, inside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are there any any vegetables that you know of or any greens, um, any nutrients that you're getting from those that you're not getting from meat? Like if we just kind of reversed roles here, like is there anything that plants do offer? No. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing that's been ever shown to be a necessary nutrient that is only available in plants. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, it's another interesting chart. I don't know if you have this on on that on that slide share. You have to send it to me if you do. But the 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 bar chart that illustrates the different degrees of micronutrients, different amounts of micronutrients with like a, a vegetable compared to a red meat. It's the red meats off the charts. Yeah, and that is especially true if you're willing to eat organs. Liver is like a nutrient. It's one of the most nutrient dense things we know. I was I recently had the privilege of visiting the Paleo Medicina Clinic in Hungary and in Europe people eat uh, organs a lot more than we do here in America. I don't know why that tradition disappeared so much, but I got a chance to eat um lung soup and to eat uh, brains and all kinds of things that are just very hard to get here and those are also full of different nutrients that are even a step up from red from just red muscle meat. But even just red muscle meat alone is is a power pack. Mm-hmm. And the the other interesting thing when you're comparing you're comparing plants and animals as a food source. Animal foods and it it makes sense, right? Animal uh, if you're eating the body of an animal, then you're getting essentially everything that you would need in a mammal body, almost like to the perfect proportions if you ate the whole thing, right? But with plants, they have they have such a different kind of physical makeup that if you wanted to get all the things that you needed, for example, even just it's very well known that the protein, the amino acid profile of plants are never complete on their own, and you have to do this special dance to make sure you get some of this and some of that um, so that you can get all of the amino acids in the right proportions for what your body needs. Do you think, um, like if somebody was to do carnivore and, and only eat steaks, for instance, are they going to be deficient in anything? Like should they make it a point to include more of like the, the livers and other organ meats or are they going to be fine with just just plain steak every day? That's a million dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a great controversy in the community right now because a lot of people who have been doing this diet for a long time come from the school of thought where you don't need to supply any organs and that if you just eat muscle meat, that will be fine. And and I know many people that I've interacted with over the years who eat that way and don't seem to have any issues. And and it's really important not to ignore that evidence. On the other hand, there is the argument that um, 
if you look back at all the traditions, we definitely were eating all those organs and they are high sources of vitamins. And it's quite plausible to believe that at, at the very least, if you're starting out, you may already have some deficiencies in play that would be easier to address by just eating all that stuff up front and getting everything in the proportion it needs to be. So I don't really have a definitive answer. I think that muscle meat is so nutritious that if a deficiency were to be a problem, it could take a really long time to show itself and we just don't have the the, the data yet. Yeah, so much of this is, I mean, we're on the cutting edge of this in, in a sense. I mean, everybody kind of coming onto the keto space right now is going to be cool, you know, 50 years from now because there's going to be so many more you know, test subjects that we can look and pull information from, but it's not really gained in popularity until just recently, it seems. Yeah, it really has exploded. What about, um, like, if you look way back in history, like the Australopithecus, for instance, and, you know, science illustrated that, that their brain function improved dramatically once they started eating much more, you know, animal tissues and meats. What do you think is happening in the present day for, you know, people that are, switching to more of a carnivorous type, you know, ketogenic diet and just consuming a lot more proteins and meats, do you think our brains are improving still? I do think that that makes a great improvement. We don't, again, like you said, since we're kind of at the leading edge beginning of this, we don't have the kind of studies that you would want to have that show an all-meat diet versus an all-meat diet with some low-carb plants to really get a comparison of where people would be. But I recently did a poll. Uh, some generous people in the zero-carb community answered some questions for me on a survey to tell me how their, how different aspects of their health changed when going from a low-carb, like a regular low-carb diet that includes plants to an all meat diet. And one of the most consistent things that people said was that their focus improved dramatically, their mood improved dramatically, their energy and their sleep and their, their just feeling of cognitive ability improved dramatically. And uh, this is an experience that I've had as well. Uh, as you may know, the reason that I've stayed on a carnivorous diet all this time was that when I initially tried it, which was really just a weight loss vanity move on my part, my lifelong or adult-long mood disorder that I had vanished, and it's never returned. So that, I think, is very strong evidence that our brains are positively affected by not just making sure you include a lot of meat, which is important because of all those micronutrients that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. but also something about removing the plants is having a strong effect on the brain. So they're, they're kind of, you know, symbiotic in nature, almost like the, it's not good enough to just eat a lot more protein, but almost, you know, eat more protein while also decreasing the vegetable intake. That's what a lot of people are finding. Interesting. I, I eat a little bit of veggies, but it's it's like, I mean, I'm talking, you know, less than 20, sometimes less than 10 grams of total carbs a day. Um, so pr mm -hmm. pretty minimal. Um, what about... I think there's... Go ahead. I, th I think there is a qualitative difference in 
even just a small amount of plant food that that many people are experiencing that is completely unexpected because it has nothing to do with the carb count. And you might really enjoy an experiment of even just two weeks just to see what happens if you take them out. You might be surprised. I have I played around a little bit with um, with carnivore in the sense that I'll have you know pretty much just meat. Like I'll, I'll go on a streak of just eating ribeyes every day, um, and then I'll just I'll feel great, and then I'll crave like just one big salad or something. I'll have a salad, and it'll be good for another couple of weeks. Um, that's so that's kind of my technique, which is not really much of a technique, just kind of more off of going what I'm craving. Yeah, and in your case, uh, you're probably a really healthy individual. I'm looking at your picture, and you look fantastic, and you. probably you have a lot of ability to tolerate more than what other people who whose bodies over time have become more compromised might not be able to tolerate anymore and and obviously i think we've we've had some planned intake over time always for a variety of reasons and i think it's only when you get a certain level especially in combination with grains and with seed oils and all these different toxic compromises that are going on um, that people get overloaded and really need to give it all up so you i think you may be in a good position where you're able to have that balance what what about um uh the difference in in protein sources um i've I've got like a million ideas going through my head right now um so i've got all kinds of questions i want to ask you but what, what about the difference in like red meat versus like chicken or pork um any variation there is there better one better than the other well the the redness in the meat corresponds to the iron levels and so the iron is definitely higher in red meat but other other nutrients are higher in red meat and and pork really is a red meat it's just um kind of bred a little bit to have a little bit less and the saturated and, and monounsaturated fats that come with the mammal meat are also um, more in quantity and probably um, important to have. So I wouldn't say that you need to avoid chicken, but in my experience, most people who are successful carnivores really do base their diet on beef or maybe pork and with little, like, use fish and poultry for more for variety gotcha gotcha um what about the uh uh like the fat sources let's talk about um fat for a moment here do you think having varying fat sources is is important or is is one one and done sufficient well it's a similar situation to the completion of the amino acid profile. When you take the fat from um, a pig or a cow, you're getting essentially exactly the right proportion of the different fatty acids that we would need. And I, I think lard is kind of a perfect fat. It's, it's become my favorite, in fact. I used to eat a lot of butter, mm-hmm. and I think butter's fine, but it is mostly saturated fat, and it, there's nothing wrong with saturated fat, but I, th- I think that, that the, um, 
the profile of fatty acids in lard and in beef are are ideal. Do you have a specific lard that you prefer, like a brand? Well, for a long time, I used only lard that I was collecting from my own cooking. My favorite way to cook bacon is to bake it in a glass pan because it doesn't it doesn't get little burn in like burnt bits in the fat so much. So after you remove the bacon from the pan, the fat that's come off it is just perfect, pure lard, pure gold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so I use that a lot, but I actually don't eat a lot of bacon, and so I got turned on to the company Fatworks. Um, I'm not supported by them in any way, but I yeah. love their products. Um, they make a they make a leaf lard that is just I could just eat it off a spoon. A leaf lard. So l- leaf lard just means the the fat that was rendered from the the. Um, visceral fat around the kidneys mm-hmm. so it's more like suet and it is considered the finest part of the fat but their regular lard is also fantastic i just got a, a jar of their duck fats from the fat works company and it, it is really tasty i haven't tried that yet i've had duck fat before but not from them it's a uh, i don't even cook with it i just like i'll cook my meal and then i'll just put a big old tablespoon on top of the meal so, that, so the <laughs> yes. flavor is more pronounced yeah. Speaking of duck, I recently got turned on to duck breast. It sounds horrible because I associate breast with the the really dry, lean part of a chicken that I never want to see again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but on a duck, it's actually quite a bit fattier. It's so fat that the way that I've seen it recommended cooking, and I've tried it and worked great, is you, you start with a cold cast iron pan and you put it fat side down in the pan and then turn it on and so much fat renders out of the skin that you you don't even need to have um put grease in the pan before it's really good i'm gonna have to try that for sure i love i love duck and cooking with cast iron is the only way to go so you combine the two and you're guaranteed success Mm-hmm. What's i do a, like grilling you like grilling <laughs> i like grilling but it, it's heartbreaking to lose all that fat as oh well. i know <laughs> i have to put like a tray beneath it or something almost yeah what um so what's like a typical day of eating look like for you what would you what have you had today so far for instance today i haven't had anything yet it's nine thirty here i have had coffee I, I typically eat two meals a day, one of them around somewhere between 11 and 1, and one of them somewhere between maybe 5 and 7. And, yeah, I just I don't really get hungry in the morning anymore. Occasionally I do. I, I let hunger dictate, which has been really um, – it's really fr- uh, a sense of freedom that I didn't used to have. Where, well, I guess before I went on a low-carb diet, I was hungry all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then even on a low-carb diet, even though appetite is definitely much more in control naturally on a low-carb diet, I was always thinking about recipes and what I was going to cook and um, just obsessed with food in a way that I no longer am. I don't tend to really get hungry until 
in a really visceral way until the food is in front of me on my plate. And then appetite kicks in and I can eat a lot. And then I just don't even think about it. That's, that's the best way to do it. I mean, it's, it's the ketogenic diet itself, I think, is very liberating in the sense that you become so much more in tune with your body that you know when you're hungry, you know when you're full, and you're able to self-regulate much more instinctively. Absolutely. You know, it's so funny. I think that modern medical idea and cultural idea is that our natural instincts are primitive and barbaric and they need to be transcended and if we're just left to follow our instincts we would be unhealthy and in in the modern world with the food that we're surrounded with that actually turns out to be true so there's a reason people think that but we we think of our bodies as being prone to dysfunction um kind of like if you have a machine like a, a car or something you expect it over time to just break down due to entropy. Mm-hmm. But a living system is actually honed to respond to damage and, and heal itself in a way that machines don't. So I think that because our, our bodies developed in this particular context with a a particular food environment where we were used to certain kinds of damage and assault and got very good at healing ourselves in in response to that. And we're used to a certain amount of and and kind of nutritional content coming in that, that made us run the best. You suddenly put our bodies into this mismatched environment that we aren't used to and are all of those things that we developed, like our natural instinct for when we're hungry and when we're not, break down because we're just not getting the things that are making those signals work properly. So if, even if you go on a ketogenic diet, even before you think about carnivory and getting rid of plants, you're already so much closer to what our body expects us to do that all of a sudden all of these things that the modern world considers to be that we need to calculate with our brains just naturally fall into place. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I'm all about, you know, calculation and data and knowing all the numbers and tweaking things, but that's simply from like an optimizing performance standpoint. When it comes to just a lifestyle perspective, I mean the ketogenic diet is is perfect because, you know, everything you just said there is true and it's it's just like when you take things to the complete opposite end of the spectrum and introduce all these foods that honestly can't even be classified as foods. Um, I mean, how, how can somebody expect to be in tune with how their body feels because they're, it's just so far removed from what we're naturally supposed to eat in the first place? Right, and then you, you kind of grow up thinking, well, I, I can't trust my body. I have to make an intervention to, in order to get it to function properly. And that's, just, that's so backwards. It is, it is. That's why we're spreading the word right now, though, right? <laughs> that's right. Um, what about like dairy and it, I know there's different levels of hardcore carnivory, I guess you could say, but you know, some people turn their nose up to, you know, having dairy, like when you have your coffee, for instance, are you okay to have heavy cream in there or is that against the whole carnivorous approach? Well, definitely in ZC, it's considered fine. It's from the animal kingdom 
And there are different schools of thought on it for different reasons. So there used to be a blogger called um, Kurt, his name is Kurt Harris. I, I'm not remembering the name that his site had. And he argued that dairy, even though it didn't exist in our paleo environment, is a fine food because all of its components come from animal and are there's nothing in there that we wouldn't have been exposed to in some other way. I'm not sure he's completely correct on that uh, because I think that dairy probably does have certain proteins and components that don't come from any other source except for dairy. And one thing that I can definitely say is that some carnivores do perfectly fine with it, and but many others notice that, for example, if they still haven't lost all the weight that they want to lose, dairy will prevent it, and they take out the dairy and it goes away. Another common response is to feel an, a kind of addictive relationship with it. This is something that I definitely have, and especially with fermented dairy. I can have cream to some degree, and it doesn't seem to affect my appetite or what I think about in terms of food. But if I have cheese or yogurt, suddenly my appetite is becomes dysregulated, and I will find myself going back to the fridge looking specifically for, for more cheese or more yogurt, even though I know I'm not hungry. And the way I know that is I look at that steak, and I don't, I don't have any interest in it. And if I'm not interested in steak, frankly, I don't think I'm actually hungry. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it for sure. I've heard, you know, like you look at humans and, you know, any other animal, they, they basically get weaned from their mother and they don't have dairy after that point. Whereas humans right. will oftentimes consume dairy, you know, years after that natural point. Um, so I've heard the argument that, you know, as you get older, uh, you basically develop a um, an intolerance to it. And that just becomes more and more amplified the older you get. Of course, that's going to be different based on the individual, but that... That makes sense in my mind. Yeah, it makes sense to me too. I think there are some regions of the world where that uh, ability, the enzymatic ability to continue to digest lactose continues into adulthood. Uh, but that is, I think, not the, not the majority case. And lactose is only one component of the whole dairy situation. Um, I think there are proteins in dairy that some people react to, as well as the breaking down of the sugar. I think it's honestly just like a case by case. Anybody that's curious about dairy should just, you know, do kind of an elimination diet almost and just see how they respond and give it enough time, obviously, to see how they respond. Um, that's the bottom line. I mean, you can theorize forever and you'll never know exactly what's going to happen until you try it. Yeah, 100%. Um, I meant to ask this earlier, but I forgot to. What, when we were talking about the digestive process and how it's kind of changed over the time, what what do you say to people whose arguments, uh, you know, when you remove the vegetables and you remove the fiber, when they ask about, um, you know, your digestion, how's your digestion, and you not get constipated on carnivore? What, what's the what's the answer there? Well, it's it's really funny because um, remember that survey I mentioned earlier the the top. The very top thing that 
affected the most people on low carb that went away on zero carb was digestive issues. So especially bloating and gas goes away, but also constipation resolved in in many people, diarrhea resolved in many people. And then beyond that, from a therapeutic standpoint, I think I do believe that a all meat diet is the single best therapy for colitis or Crohn's disease or irritable bowel syndrome. From all of the feedback that I've gotten, removing vegetables is is the best solution. But even if you look at conventional medicine where they will never tell you to do that, the the advice about fiber is is hedged at best. Most of I, I did an analysis on my blog recently about fiber and there was a review paper that looked at different recommendations what people were actually advocating in practice for people with digestive problems and almost all of them had a limit on fiber because it's it's just irritating to the gut mm-hmm. I think a lot of people assume that they're constipated too simply because they haven't gone as frequently or as regularly but Honestly, I think That's a lot of right. that can be traced back to your body just simply doesn't have as much waste anymore. Yeah, there's a big difference between not having any any material to go through and um, feeling that it's there and you can't get it out. Mm-hmm. And and there's this conception that we need to be regular, right? And if you don't have a bowel movement for a couple of days, then maybe something's wrong with you. But fiber, the reason why fiber adds so much bulk is that it is is exactly because it's non-digestible, so it has to come back out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's no there's no value in and of itself of having uh, bigger bowel movements or more frequent bowel movements. You just have to get rid of the waste, and if there's not a lot, then then that's fine. Yeah, exactly. Um, I really really want to dive into the macro portions because i know you you don't track macros yourself right you're pretty instinctive with it yes i have on occasion tracked macros just to kind of see where i am and there are times where i've played around with deliberately eating more or less fat but you're right as as a day-to-day thing i don't track now i have looked at your your blog and and your posts and you seem to be consuming a pretty good you know amount of fat which is, uh, you know, obviously in line with like the ketogenic protocol of you know higher fat. Um, there's a lot of people out there now that are, are going carnivore, but with incredibly high fat ratios, almost or with incredibly high protein ratios, rather, almost to the point of where I, I would assume that it would hinder ketone production and almost not even be you know ketogenic diet at that point. What is your take on you know fat relative to protein and just what's optimal? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because there's a lot of controversy out there right now about what to do. And even just on the the kind of simpler problem of weight loss, some people insist that if you want better weight loss, you have to eat more protein. And some people say if you want better weight loss, you have to eat more fat. So even that's not resolved. Um, I do think that there are limits to the amount of protein we can metabolize protein protein is mostly functionally a nutrient we want it to use it for the structures of our body and if we end up metabolizing more than 
more than a little bit for the calories, it's kind of inefficient and it does have ammonia as a byproduct which we have to get rid of so there's some kind of taxing on the body and some people argue that it you absolutely should not eat more than about three grams per kilogram of your of your ideal body weight mm-hmm. per day because of just of that ammonia load but as to whether or not you're ketogenic my my sense is that most people who try a carnivorous diet and don't deliberately try to play around with ratios end up at a level of protein to fat that induces a mild ketogenic state, not a deep ketogenic state, unless they're specifically trying to eat more fat, but that most of them do show some ketones and some of them don't. The other the other thing about ketosis, I think ketosis is massively beneficial. We know a lot about how it affects the brain and body and how how many ju- just chronic conditions that were previously considered uncurable are resolvable with a ketogenic diet or at least improved by it. Like even stuff like um, cognition in it, cognitive deficits in Alzheimer's, definitely epilepsy. There, there's the beneficial effect on type 2 diabetes, and it goes on and on. But what I'm finding in the carnivorous community is that even people who don't seem to be getting into deep ketosis are getting huge benefits just from the removal of plants. And this is something that we're only at the beginning of our understanding of how that could even be at a mechanistic level. I was hugely impressed when I went to visit Paleo Medicina a, a couple of weeks ago because they they do emphasize making their diet ketogenic, but they also have been exploring reasons to do with intestinal permeability that they believe are the mechanistic reasons that removal of plants is so beneficial for autoimmune disorders, digestive disorders, and mood disorders in particular. And so what I'm seeing in the carnivorous community is that even if you're not in ketosis, you're still probably going to get your arthritis to go away or mostly go away. And and that's really significant. So based off of that, I'm, I'm really curious, like it sounds like the most optimal diet, uh, and again, this is going to be kind of individualized, but just based off of that information, I would think it would be a um, like a keto carnivore without the plants, but with a higher fat ratio so that you can achieve a deeper state of ketosis and really be able to tap into all those benefits. That is where I am currently thinking too. There was a long time where I thought ketosis maybe didn't matter as much, and and like I said, you can get huge benefits just from removing plants, but why not combine the two and get all the benefits of both? I've I've played around a little bit with, you know, different, uh, Danny Vega and I did an experiment and we played around with different ratios. And, and one thing that I noticed when my protein was significantly higher, um, not, not, you know, significantly higher than my fat, but much higher than the, the ratios I typically go with, 
I noticed my you know gl glucose levels were higher, my blood glucose levels were higher. So does that indicate that higher protein ratios um, without you know higher fat ratio to kind of balance that out could lead to increased you know gluconeogenesis and just more blood glucose in the blood? Well, I think I think what's happening there is that if you start with a low blood sugar. I don't know if you saw the presentation from Low Carb Breckenridge given by Dr. Benjamin Beekman mm -hmm. recently. Um, it was a fantastic presentation. Anyone who hasn't seen it should look at it. Um, he talked about how there, if you take protein, take in protein, the effect on your insulin and glucagon levels depends on what state you're in already. So if you're in a low blood sugar state, it's going to affect your um, insulin and glucagon differently, differently than if you're in a high blood sugar state. And what, what I have also noticed when I was researching about the effects on blood glucose of um, protein intake is that if you're in a ketogenic state, sorry, if you're in a high carb state, it's pretty well known that protein doesn't have much of a, an effect on your blood sugar. But what it does have an effect on is Ben Beacon was also showing, is that it'll raise your insulin level with respect to glucagon quite high, and, and that will affect your level of ketosis. And if your ketosis goes down, your tissues still need energy, and so it's going to have to demand more glucose. And so in that way, it's, it's calling on gluconeogenesis to come in more. So it's not necessarily a direct result of the protein being there and available to turn into sugar, but it's just a, a, a sort of longer, longer chain consequence of the hormonal response. On the other hand, if you're on a ketogenic diet, if you take in protein, your insulin to glucagon ratio isn't going to change very much at all, but your blood sugar is going to go up in response. And it's not going to go up horrendously, and it's going to come back down. But my thinking is that if you do that over and over to a high level of protein, if your blood sugar goes up sufficiently, all of a sudden you're going to be in that first situation where, where the higher blood sugar affects your hormonal response to the insulin and glucagon. And suddenly, instead of it being neutral the way it was when you had low blood sugar and you were more ketogenic, it's going to start looking like the higher carb situation. And that's going to cause a cycle that gets you uh, more into a gluconeogenic state. So that's, I don't know if that made sense, but that's how I'm currently conceiving of it. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that made sense for sure. I, I, um, I don't know, I'm, I take a keen interest towards this because a lot of people you know, they'll try something and they, they feel much better. But there's there's not really a, a clear black and white, you know, this is optimal because so much of it depends on, you know, your history, what you're, you're immediately coming from, um, you know, so many variables at play. Like with nutrition, there's not any cut and dry. Um, but for, for myself, I've definitely noticed, you know, optimized performance when my fat ratios are considerably higher. Like I, I tend to keep my... Uh, fat ratio at about 78 to 82% of my calories coming from fat. Um, and even when I tried the carnivore, you know, I, I can do the carnivore, but then I add the fat or I just get the fattiest cuts possible to make sure I stay within those ratios even while just eating meat. Um, and I always feel just much better mentally and physically without yes. the huge boluses of just pure protein. 
Yes, I have the same experience. If Even if I eat a large meal that's completely carnivorous, I'll experience more of that postprandial low that it harkens back to the higher carb days. Not anything to that degree, but my energy will go down. And I'm not a, a high-performing athlete by any stretch, but I can definitely feel energy changes. And I, I'm more of a a mentally focused person. And so that ability to focus and continue to do um, thinking and researching my performance at, at that task also improves when I'm more ketogenic. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I could tell when I was doing this experiment with Danny, it was kind of funny because the, the day after I increased my fat ratio, I woke up with like so much more energy, like significantly more energy than when I was waking up during the month of the higher protein. It's just, um, I, feel, I feel like if you've been in a ketogenic state or if you've been low carb for a considerable amount of time, kind of what we were saying earlier, your body just responds much more, or you're just more in tune with your body and it responds to what you give it much more uh, readily. And with that higher fat ratio, it was like a switch and my body just, I, I don't know, it, it felt much better. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. What about um, protein digestion and like the, the the size of a meal, a given meal of protein? A lot of people are afraid or concerned that if they have a meal, um, you know, with greater than 50 grams of protein, for instance, their body can only absorb so much of that and any leftover is just not going to be used. Does, does protein uh, quantity matter in a given meal? Like some people will do a one meal a day approach and they'll have all of their protein intake for the day in that one sitting. Does their body use all of that? I don't know a lot about um, specifically the process of digestion of protein, but I do know that protein doesn't seem to be coming out undigested. And I, I've also read that there is a much longer, there, there can be a much longer process of releasing uh, absorbed protein into the bloodstream um, so that you're, you digest it and then the gut releases it over a longer period of time. I, I think that if you ate a lot of protein and you didn't digest it, you would know and that would be a really uncomfortable and unhealthy situation. I, I don't suspect that that's happening at all. The advantages, so there are, two, <laughs> there are pros and cons of uh, having bigger, less frequent meals. The one pro is that you're going to have a longer period of time that's that I, I'm going to call it fasting for lack of a better word, even if it's just one one day. And you, so you have a longer period in which your body is in that re reparative autophagy stage, and that could have some benefits. And and people do say that they see benefits from sort of alternate day or even just one meal a day eating schedule. A disadvantage might be that, um, especially if you have a background from, with type 2 diabetes, that the blood sugar response, having it all together in one place, might be more pronounced than if you had smaller portions throughout the day. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule, but something definitely to play with. I, I can I can vouch for that for sure. I'll, when I do the one meal a day approach, 
I'll feel noticeably tired postprandial, like my body will take a little bit longer to, to get energized again. Um, yes. Like I'll experience a, an increase in blood sugar. But like for me personally, that one sitting of that um, and then kind of having that longer fasting window, I just feel better in that window than if I had eaten every six hours or so. Yes. Yeah, I know what you mean. What about... Um, Actually, we've already been talking for an hour. I don't know how much time you get here. Um, I don't want to take too much of your time. But what what um, what would what are you excited about as far as like the research that's coming out now, the research that you're doing? What really kind of gets you excited as it relates to you know keto and carnivore? The thing that I'm most excited about right now is following up with this mechanism about intestinal permeability that I mentioned for how plants might be disrupting health. That's something that's been a mystery to me for a really long time. I have um, my own experience and all these other people's anecdotes that doesn't seem to have much to do with the carbs because you could eat some cheese or liver and be getting more carbs than you were getting in your fibrous vegetables and yet have this huge effect on what seems um, to be, you might think if you were coming from a different perspective that it has nothing to do with diet. And so I'm really excited about learning about intestinal permeability and how the, the lectins and other anti-nutrients in plants might be causing a disruption in the membranes of the gut that allow proteins to get through into our bloodstream that are we then put up an immune defense against and that is causing a host of problems. So it's almost like they compete for each other in a sense. Well, I think it's that it's compromising our our natural immune system and causing us to um, have proteins in our bloodstream that normally would be broken down before they got there. And then our, our bodies are trying to defend against that, and it's it's causing other problems within the body. Honestly, I, I don't know very much about it, and that's why I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's I'm, I'm intrigued as well, because, I mean, I've always advocated, you know, low to no carb for the, the simple reason that I feel much better and my, my clients feel much better with low to no carb. But I've never thought of it through the lens of, you know, those those few carbs that you are taking in could still be doing more harm than good. Mm-hmm. What about like um like mushrooms and stuff like that, like the fungi? Do they have a place, or is it kind of in the same boat as any other vegetable? I haven't played around with them much myself. They do have the same kind of motivations to have phytochemicals in them that are going to be defensive but i know that some people i know some people who eat a mainly carnivorous diet who can tolerate mushrooms so i think there may be some they're probably much less of a problem than definitely than grains and legumes and maybe nightshades as well but i would think I, the body could absorb them probably much easier Hopefully. <laughs> they taste good yeah, anyways. They sure do. They're almost they're the most meat like plant, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> or the well, they're not a plant even. They're a fungus, so I guess that's why. I could happily live ever, happily ever after with just, you know, quality meats and, and some mushrooms on the side and be, be totally fine. That sounds fantastic. Right, I've got I've got one more question for you, Amber. 
What is your favorite meal? <laughs> I think it. I think ribeye is just the answer to that. I do love lamb and and oysters on occasion are a real treat. But if if you just asked me, you did just ask me what my favorite was. <laughs> I don't think I could say anything other than ribeye. It's, and how do you like your ribeye prepared? I like it somewhere between rare and medium rare, um, really crispy on the outside. I, I, I tend to take my steaks and put the, open the packages and put them directly on a rack in the fridge so that the outside can get a bit dry for a couple of days, mm -hmm. two, two to three days. And then that, um, that just allows the outside to get crispier in a way that I really like. Do you think the um, there you lose any nutrient content if you cook that meat for a longer period of time, or you think like the the rarer like is a rarer steak going to have more nutrients for you to absorb than like a well done steak? I mostly do it as a matter of taste because I just really like the flavor that is left in when it's more rare or even raw. I don't know exactly how much of the nutrients are susceptible to heat damage. Vitamin C is one that has been said is more susceptible, and I've also heard that certain enzymes that are present in the meat will break down through cooking, and that raw meat is much more digestible in part because of that. But I don't think that I don't think that you need to eat raw or even rare to get the benefits of a carnivorous diet. Gotcha, gotcha. This steak question has led me to one more question. <laughs> sure, go for it. Is there any difference between the the nutrient profile, like the fatty acid profile, of you know, like a a grass fed cut versus grain fed? The amount of fat is going to be less when you don't grain finish because that last step is specifically in order to get more fat. But in terms of the fatty acid profile itself, the only differences that I've heard claims about are in the polyunsaturated fat, which is a small amount. Um, I think approximately 90% of the fat in beef or pork is about half monounsaturated and half saturated. So you're left with about 10% of the polyunsaturated, which ideally, I think, would be a balance between omega-6 and omega-3, and a lot of people uh, are really convinced that that balance is what's critical. I think that reducing the omega-6 may be more important than getting a balance per se, and that's what these claims are that I've read about grass-finished, is that the amount of omega-6 that's introduced by adding that grain um, is more and therefore it's less healthy. In the context of a diet that doesn't have any other sources of omega-6, in practical terms that might not have any effect, but it might. And if you're at that point where where you are, for example, where you're, you're really fine-tuning, you've got, you've got a baseline diet that's really healthy, by default, and now you're trying to optimize it to make it even better. The grass, the grass-fed, might be the way to go. My my only concern about it is you, you've 
got to get the fat. And what I'm hoping, I think a lot of the initial demand in the market for grass-fed beef came from people who also happened to have the misconception that that fat is not good for you. And so they were demanding not just um, grass-fed for whatever reasons of sustainability or um, ethics that they had, but they wanted it to be leaner. And so I think what's happened is the people who have gone to the market with providing grass-fed beef have chosen breeds that are specifically leaner. And what I'm really hoping is that as the paleo movement continues, uh, more people who have no fear of fat will be demanding grass-fed, and then you can get uh, people who are introducing high-fat breeds so that you're not getting that compromise. Because honestly, for me, I would rather eat a conventionally raised steak if it has marbling in it than a, a stringy grass-fed steak, regardless of what other properties it might have. Yeah, the flavor is definitely much more, much much better with the fattier cuts. Yeah, and I'm I don't think that that's a compromise we really have to make. I think that's just a, a an artifact of the current market we're in. I agree. It's interesting that you know you really start diving into optimizing your health and you know all the different types of fats. You know, most people just group fat as fat, but you start diving into you know saturated and monounsaturated, and then polyunsaturated, and then, then from there omega three versus omega six. And there's so many fats out there that are used, you know, in the standard American diet that are just the polyunsaturated and trans fats um, that aren't really going to affect your glucose or insulin that much, but it's going to have like a hardening of the cell membrane that, that people don't even realize that and they, they don't realize the inflammatory effects of it. Um, so kind of improving right. the quality of your fats is, is of key paramount importance as well. I'd even um, take it one level deeper and say omega-6 isn't all one thing and omega-3 isn't all one thing. The two of the most important fats that are in your brain are DHA, which is an omega-3, and arachidonic acid, which is an omega-6. And we need that arachidonic acid. That's It's vitally important. So, um, yeah, there's always more levels of subtlety to get to. With the omega-6s, um, I know a lot of people, they, they kind of want to, dampen those and not taking too much but like you just illustrated there you need some um what are some good ways to get that for somebody that might not be wanting to go carnivore necessarily but just like some good uh food products like flax or something would that be a good option the thing about plant-based sources of uh essential fatty acids is we're limited as humans in our ability to convert and that's, uh, there's some genetic variation in that. Some people have almost no ability to convert properly with essential fatty acids. And so I would definitely recommend it, getting your essential fatty acids from some kind of animal source. If you are, if you're not a carnivore, if you're specifically focused on a plant-based diet, um, I think there are some algae supplements that you can go for that um, have done that conversion. But I think that it's limited how much you can get out of plants, and it may be overrated. Yeah. This is fascinating. This is, uh, I mean, I'm really liking this podcast. I'm learning. <laughs> you, just, you just keep going, <laughs> diving deeper and deeper and deeper into it. I'm having fun, too. I love it. Um, well, Amber, where, where can people go to find out more about you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Keto Carnivore. 
and I have two blogs currently. One is more about um, different science dives that I've taken to do with the ketogenic diet and not carnivores specifically. That's ketotic.org, K-E-T-O-T-I-C dot O-R-G. And then my what was originally conceived of as a more personal blog, but where in practice I've written much more of material about following a carnivorous diet, is Empirica. So the ending is .ca. I, I'm Canadian, it happens, even though I'm in Colorado today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's like empirical, but without the L and the and the CA is after the dot. Perfect. I'll link out to all three of those as well so people can follow along the journey and, and learn something. I'm really curious with, with your current research because, like I said, I, I think that's a frontier right now for sure as far as, you know, what implications does having the plants at all introduce into the body? Yes, I am too. Be very good. Well, Amber, it has been an absolute pleasure, and let's definitely keep in touch because I'll be eager to learn more next time for sure. My pleasure as well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Have a good one.